If God is able, we are able. Welcome to the One Cause Church podcast with Pastor Eric Holler. Let's turn to Psalm 91 on the screen. We're going to read this portion of Scripture together. It's 16 verses, um, and uh, we've been walking through this incredible chapter the last couple of weeks, and next week we'll finish it off. But today, uh, we're in part three, and uh, we've been reading it together every week. So if you would, please read jubilantly and loudly with me now. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways." In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, Father, we do thank you for these amazing promises. We thank you for the word of God, that it is living and powerful. Father, we thank you that it is the highest authority, and we receive your word into our hearts and lives today. We know that we're better because of your word. Your word shows us who we really are. Your word shows us who you are, God, and and how we are Uh, fit together by love. Father, thank you for the spirit of wisdom and revelation now in the knowledge of Christ to be upon your people. Your word is life to those who find it and health to all of their flesh. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for reading with me. You may be seated. And I I, uh, I just want to give a little bit of recap of some things that we've, we've talked about. I've titled this message Psalm 91. It's divine because we have lots of D words we've been going through. And um, uh, if you have uh, not heard any of these messages, you can definitely go to our website, onecausechurch.com, and um, click on the podcast button, and we have all of our sermons free for you to listen to throughout your week and to be continue to be enriched by God's Word. Uh, but I just need to touch shortly on a few things, and then we'll get into some new things today. And the first the first verse says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Everybody say dwelling. Now, David was talking about something that he had to uh, get into that was not at an all-the-time reality for him because 
he was under the old covenant where the Spirit of God did not dwell in men, but he would come up on them from time to time. Uh, you and I have a greater reality, as Jeremiah was talking about this morning, this amazing new covenant that God cut in his son's body, and that through that new covenant, he opened up a new and living way. And Paul said it like this, that there was this mystery that was hidden throughout the ages, which has now been revealed, that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul even said that in, in Acts 17, he said that in him, that is in Christ, we live and we move and we have our being. He is our dwelling place. He is our home. Hallelujah. I'm grateful to God for that. That it's not, he's not coming to visit us from time to time and to peek in on our lives, but he came and moved in to our very lives, into our spirit, and is always that very present help. He is every resource of home for you and I. Amen. And then he says, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God and him I will trust. Everybody say declaration. All right. David says, I will say of the Lord. It is important that you speak about your God, especially when you find yourself in adversity. And my question is, what do you say about God in your adversity? Because what's coming out of your mouth is the product of what you believe in your heart. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. All right. The scripture also says that we have the same spirit of faith as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. So we understand that faith has a voice. Faith has a declaration. David said, I will say of the Lord. Your words are the declaration of the belief of your heart. Who you believe God is will determine ultimately what you believe that he can and will do for you. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence, which is just a bunch of bad stuff, and God doesn't want you involved in that stuff. So he has a deliverance for you. Everybody shout deliverance. And what the, the greatest thing that God has shown us concerning deliverance is his son, and his son bears a name that means deliverer. His name is Jesus. Through Greek transliteration, his name is Jesus, but his name is actually Joshua. Joshua means deliverer. Moses means drawn out. But God didn't want us just thinking about and identifying with the kingdom of darkness that we've been drawn out of, even though we thank God that we have been brought out of that nastiness. But he wanted us more identifying with what we've been delivered into than what we've been brought out of. All right, That's why his name is Jesus, so that we all understand there is, he is our deliverer, which means there is always a deliverance for us to experience. Hallelujah. So that we'll never become bound by sin. We'll never be, be entrapped by evil and not have any way out. But God has always, through His Son, through that name that is above every name, offered us a deliverance, given us the victory through Jesus Christ. Amen. The Scripture says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved or shall be delivered. And then verse 4 says, He shall cover you with His feathers and under His wings you shall take refuge, His truth shall be your shield and buckler. It's another beautiful thing that God is our defense. Everyone say defense. Hallelujah. God, God loves you so much, and he's willing to defend you at all costs. Matter of fact, the scripture says, John says, these things I write to you that you, that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. In other, in other words, we have a defender. We have somebody who is on our side, who is pleading our case, our cause before his Father. Hallelujah. And that blood that Jesus is seated in, you realize that Jesus took an offering of his own blood and poured it upon the mercy seat of heaven and then sat down on that blood, ensuring us 
that the war between heaven and earth, between God and man, through sin is over. That's what the word peace means. It's a Greek word, irene, and it means the end of the rage and havoc of war, a state of national tranquility, which means that God only has one position concerning you, and that is He loves you and He is on your side. He will defend you at all costs. And we looked at it even at an Old Testament example when Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse Israel so that they could beat them in battle. But all Balaam could do, his tongue was apprehended by God, and all he could do was bless them. All right? All they could say was good things about them. And then one of the things that Balaam said, which was interesting, he said, I have not observed, he has not observed, God has not observed iniquity in Jacob, and nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. And it's interesting that he said that because if you read the prior chapters, it seems that's all God is doing concerning Israel, and Jacob is observing iniquity and evil. Fiery serpents were sent into the camp. The poisonous snakes sent in because they were complaining against God. Moses, uh, his ministry got wrecked and he couldn't enter into the promised land because he struck the rock the second time. So there's lots of things God is observing. However, God wants us all to understand something here today, that it's one thing for himself to deal with your weakness, to deal with your failings, to deal. but when the enemy comes to accuse you, God has nothing but good to say about you. Because when you pick on his family, he takes it personally. Even Jesus told Paul, or Saul, I should say, of Tarsus, when, when the bright light shone on him on the road to Damascus and he fell off of his beast of burden, and he said, Who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. He didn't say, why, You are persecuting my church. He said, Why are you persecuting me? He is your defense. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? The scripture says no one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. And the scripture says that blood of sprinkling that Jesus put on that mercy seat speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel, the... uh, uh, the brother of Cain, who was killed by Cain, and uh, out of just pure envy and jealousy, and his blood, God told Cain that your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What was that blood saying? That blood was saying, avenge me. That blood was saying, there's injustice here. But the blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. If anybody needed to be avenged for being an innocent man hanging on a cross, it was Jesus. But no, his blood didn't say that. His blood said, forgive them. His blood said, now accept this sacrifice. And, and, and Father, let this blood say for them that they are righteous. They are holy. They are above reproach. That it is finished. That the war is over. Sin is abolished. And this is a people that are dedicated to their God. This is a holy people. These now are not just just, uh, uh, people who are trying to do righteous things. No, they have become the righteousness of God in Christ. Hallelujah. They are sons of God now. I, I love that. Which teaches us that God is more on your side than even you yourself are. You shall not be afraid, verse 5 of the terror by night nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. You shall not be afraid. Say, I shall not be afraid. All right? Dauntlessness. I love the word dauntless. It means resolutely fearless. And what he's helping us understand is, yeah, there is trouble out in the world. There is destruction. There is calamity. But it is not your place as his child to go looking for it. You don't have to look far if you want to find it. All right? It is there. Jesus said, in this world you have trouble, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. 
All right? Let's look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Proverbs, the great wise King Solomon wrote this in Proverbs 15, all the days of the desponding and afflicted are made evil by anxious thoughts and forebodings. That is this this intuition, if you will, a twisted intuition that something is going to go wrong, that there is some calamity waiting for you around the corner. And so this is why days are made evil for the desponding and afflicted because they're only expecting bad to happen. They're only expecting things to turn wrong. They've bought into the idea that all good things must come to an end. But as a believer, that's not your reality. Because you serve a God, as David said, you are good and you do good. Good things for you never come to an end. Christ has become your high priest of the good things to come. Amen. Hallelujah. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, which means we have no excuses for fear or worry. We 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 don't get to excuse ourselves from that. And think, well, yeah, but yeah, but if I don't worry, I feel like I don't care. Somebody's got to worry about this. No, but worry, listen, the ugly truth about worry is when you put your yourself, worry is just you putting yourself in the place of God. Ouch. Aren't you glad you came to church to hear that today? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. So, now let's get into some new things. Verse 7 says, A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Say it. It shall not come near me. Only with your eyes... He says, shall you look and see the reward of the wicked? Everybody say distance. Yeah, God, it is God's desire that you be distant from evils, to keep you, to shield you, to protect you. I love Isaiah chapter 54 because it follows this this messianic prophecy about Jesus being led to the slaughter, that by his stripes we are healed, and that he himself bore our sickness and disease, and that it pleased God to bruise him, that he would die, that he would be named among the transgressors. But hallelujah, thank God. Verse chapter 54 then says, because of those things, this is the result. You ought to just read Isaiah 54 sometime. It's a powerful, powerful chapter, and it's the celebration. It's the, it's the response. It's the, it's the effect of what happened in Isaiah 53. And 54, 14 says, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. Let's say that, far from oppression. You shall, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Verse 15, Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Amen. This, this is a God who te- he teaches us about himself that he loves you and wants no harm to come near you. He's designed you to be harmless. General Edward Braddock was the, one of the most experienced officers in England's army, and he called upon this young soldier that he had heard much about at the age of 23 by the name of George Washington. George Washington had had been in a small battle with the French and Indians and escaped with his life as he took stance at a certain fort, but to uh, no avail, they ended up actually sieging 
the, the fort, but he, esa- he escaped with his life. And so General Braddock wanted him to join him and become one of his aides. And when Washington's mother got news that, that he was going to yet go out again into battle, she tried to persuade him to stay home. And listen to the words of George Washington. He said, The God, Jesus Christ, to whom you commended me, madam, when I set out upon a more perilous errand, defended me from harm, and I trust he will do so now. Do you not? So the stage was, was set, and Washington uh, joined General Braddock, and he warned him. He warned him of the French and Indian guerrilla tactics of warfare, but Braddock didn't want to hear this from this inferior officer, and so he was insulted that he would even try to tell him how to do battle. And even the Americans who were on, or the Indians, I should say, who were on the side of the Americans, they wanted to enlist and help out, but Braddock just dismissed them as savages and basically uh, just uh, deemed that they had very little merit uh, in the war. And so on the morning of July 9th, 1755, Braddock and a thousand of his men, along, as, along with George Washington and his Virginia regulators, they crossed the southern shore of the Monongahela River, which is in Pennsylvania, and instantly it became a slaughter because Braddock had instructed his men to form columns, uh, which made it easy for them to hit, not only because they were lined up like this, but the fact that they had red coats on. So they were easy targets, and they, these guys were accustomed to just one way of doing battle, and musket balls just rained down on them from cliffs and from behind rocks and from trees. And so these Virginia men, as well as George Washington, they quickly adopted that Indian style of warfare, and so they dropped behind trees and shot only when the enemy had become in, in plain sight. And uh, this enraged General Braddock, because he just saw this as cowardice, and so he was trying to get them all to come back to that column style, because these were his rules of engagement, this is all he'd ever known, and so he was trying to rally the troops, but to no end, and even George Washington was trying to help General Braddock, Uh, he was coming out into the open and trying to just follow orders, and I mean, it was heavy, heavy, heavy warfare, and one soldier was observing George Washington running back and forth, being out in the open, an open target. He said, I expected every moment to see him fall. Nothing but the superintending care of providence could have saved him. Indians testified later that they had singled him out, but their bullets had no effect on him. They were convinced that an invisible power was protecting him. And eventually, General Edward Braddock was mortally wounded in the side, and three days later, died. And they retreated with the most lopsided battle in American history. 714 British soldiers had been killed, 37 wounded, 26 officers out of 86 were killed, and 37 of them were wounded. And only 30 men and three officers were killed of the French and Indians. And on July 18th, nine days later, George Washington returned to Fort Cumberland, which is a 120-mile journey from where the battle had ensued, and he wrote a letter to his mother to allay any fears that she would have as news of this route had already preceded them. He also wrote to his brother, listen to the words of George Washington, as I have heard since my arrival at this place, Fort Cumberland, a circumstantial account of my death and dying speech. I take this early opportunity of contradicting the first and of assuring you that I have not as yet composed the latter. 
But by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. Wow. George Washington was untouched by bullet, by bayonet, by tomahawk, and by arrow. Scores of victims had fallen beside him, yet he went unharmed. He had been protected by God's hand. Every other mounted officer was slain in that battle. What's even more interesting, 15 years later, George Washington visited that site, and there was an Indian chief, an old Indian chief, who had heard that he was in the area and wanted to have a meeting with him. And through an interpreter, this old Indian chief told General Washington, I am a chief and ruler over my tribes, and my influence extends to the waters of the Great Lakes and to the far blue mountains. I have traveled a long and weary path that I might see the young warrior of the great battle. It was on the day when the white man's blood mixed with the streams of our forest that I first beheld this chief Washington. I called to my young men and said, Mark that tall and daring warrior. He is not of the red coat tribe. He hath an Indian's wisdom. And his warriors fight as we do. Himself alone is exposed. Quick, let your aim be certain, and he dies. Our rifles were leveled, rifles which, but for you, knew not how to miss. T'was all in vain, a power mightier far than we shielded you. Seeing you were under the special guardship of the great spirit, we immediately ceased to fire at you. I am old and soon shall be gathered to the great council fire of my fathers in the land of shades. But before I go, there is something that bids me to speak in the voice of prophecy. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen. Listen, he says, the great spirit protects that man, pointing at George Washington, and guides his destinies. He will become the chief of nations. And a people yet unborn will hail him as the founder of a mighty empire. I am come to pay homage to the man who is the particular favorite of heaven and who can never die in battle. Unfortunately, this story was taken out of, taken out of our history books 40 plus years ago. Our children don't get to read this story today. What birthed this nation to greatness and what brings your own life to being great in this earth is nothing short of the heavy hand of God himself distancing you from the calamities and evils that are in this world and that your enemy certainly has planned for you. But your faith in God is your shield that quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked. He is truly on your side. God is not the coordinator of your trouble. He's your shield. He's your protector. He is your rock. He is your refuge. He is your God. Listen to the message translation. Even though others succumb all around, drop like flies right and left, no harm will even graze you. You'll stand untouched. Watch it all from a distance. Watch the wicked turn into corpses. Hallelujah. Let's move on. Verse 9 of Psalm 91 says this, Because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Everyone say determination. I love this. You have made the Lord your dwelling place. That is that you have set your mind on not what is around you, but who is in you. You determine that you're only going to accept that which God has promised you. 
You're only going to accept His report, His way. You're determined that where He is, that is where you are going to be. Amen? He, your dwelling place, will influence your choices. He, your dwelling place, will influence your marriage. He, your your dwelling place will influence your attitude and your actions and the words that come out of your mouth. It, in the Spirit, it already is so, as I said earlier. But the Scripture teaches us, and it gives us this admonition that, uh, that because you live in the Spirit, so walk in the Spirit. Have your manner of life after that. Set your mind on walking in the Spirit. In 1886, a guy by the name of Walter George, he broke the world record for the mile run. And he did it in 4 minutes and 12 and 3 quarters seconds. It was an amazing feat, one that would stand, that record would stand for 36 years. And in 1923, Pavel Numi set a new record in which he ran it in 4 minutes and 10 seconds. It took 36 years for this man to shave off 2 seconds. His record would stand for 31 years. But in the 1930s in Middlesex, England, there were two men who were in the same hospital diagnosed by the same doctor with the same disease. And that disease that was pronounced over them was a disease that would debilitate them, that would confine them to a wheelchair for the remaining part of their lives. And so one of these men accepted the doctor's report and just believed that that's how it was going to be. The other guy didn't, wasn't so easy, even though that he was confined to a wheelchair, yet he just refused to accept this state of living. And so through a very long and sad story of many, many thousands of attempts to get up out of that wheelchair, only to fail, however, he just kept trying. He just would not give up. He just would not accept that this was his fate. And finally, his body began to unlock And this man found himself up out of the wheelchair and walking. And not only walking, but he also ran. Because he told that doctor when he received the the report, not only will I walk, but I will also run. And history records that on May the 6th, 1954, in Oxford, England, Roger Bannister broke the mile record. Not only did he break the mile record, but he did it in three minutes and 59 seconds, which was said it could never be done. Not only did he have to face the the overwhelming odds of his body working against him, but also the mindset that no one would break the four-minute mile. And yet, Roger Bannister rose to the challenge and overcame both things. When uh, uh, When he had accomplished this great feat, something happened, though, to the other athletes of the world. That That mindset that had been tattooed on their minds, that, that belief that no one could break it, all of a sudden that tattoo had been removed. And over the next four years, 25 athletes broke the four-minute mile. Extraordinary. On July 7, 1999, this record still stands. In Rome, a man set a new record for the mile at 3 minutes 43 seconds. 3 minutes and 43 seconds. The doctor who had given the diagnosis to Roger Bannister, told him, you absolutely had that disease. There's no reason why you should have ever walked and certainly no reason why you should have become the fastest man in the world. However, you would not accept that. That's the only thing that I can say is the reason why you're... That's the only, that, that can be the only reason why you're doing it because you wheeled yourself out of that wheelchair. The sad part of this story is the other man that had received the diagnosis and accepted it, was in the hospital, and the doctor came to see him. And 
brought the horrible news that he had actually misdiagnosed that man. He never had the disease. And that man had accepted what the doctor said. And the doctor said, you've only been sitting in this wheelchair because you believed my diagnosis. Listen, this says that we have made, you have made the Lord your dwelling place. You have made it. You've determined that you, you've made up your mind that you're going to have what God says you can have and you are who God says that you are, that you're going to pull your own life up simply by your faith in God and your determination to have what God says. Amen. Let the words of the, the prophet Isaiah of old ring in your ears when he says, Arise from the depression and prostration in which circumstances have kept you. Rise to a new life. Shine. Be radiant with the glory of the Lord. For your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Be determined by your faith in God that nothing is impossible with God. Hallelujah. Hear his word, accept it, that is believe it, and bear the fruit of that word. And Paul gives us this bit of wisdom, and uh, lots of wisdom actually, but this, in Romans chapter 8 verse 5, he says this, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit, oh, that is they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You do live there, but you're going to have to make up your mind that you're going to walk there too. Amen. That's good preaching, Pastor Eric. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Let's go to verse 10. <laughs> no evil shall befall you. I pray this over my children and over you every day. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Everyone say direction. See, as you are led by the Spirit, walking by faith, God gives his angels charge over you to direct you from calamities, from evil, from plagues, all the way down to a stubbed toe. Lest you dash, I love the way it says, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Wow. Every step then can be influenced by God's divine direction. This shows us how involved God can be and wants to be in our lives. Invite him into every area of your life and believe that he is even in the details, not the devil in the details, but let God in the details. And enjoy the benefits of his divine direction. Solomon also said this, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Angels are sent as servants for us, ministering spirits for us right here on this earth to help give us direction, to help keep us in the right way. They're at your beck and call. My father, years ago, was sitting in a cafe in Marietta, Oklahoma. He and my mother were enjoying dinner, and he noticed that the door opened, and, and an old man came walking in. And he was shuffling about like this. And so he went and sat down. My dad said that something in him, being the Lord, told him, I want you to go tell that man that I love him. 
And so the argument started. And he sat there and contemplated and did really nothing about it but just contemplate. You know, when you're fighting, is that really God? Or is that just me? Is that the turkey talking to me? What is? And so eventually the man got up and shuffled his way out the front door. And then he heard the Spirit of God say, I said go tell him I love him. And he got up quickly. And he didn't just want to go tell the man that. He, so he, he reached in his pocket and had a $5 bill. And he thought, you know, he's pretty raggedy looking. He could probably use a little money too. So he made it out the door. And there the man was just right outside the door. He said, sir. And the man turned around. And he said, here. And he hands him the $5. And he says, I just wanted to tell you that God loves you. And he said, the man looked at him. He said, when I looked into his eyes, he looked so young. He said, I'll never forget those crystal blue eyes that he had. And he said, he kind of smiled at me like he was in on something I didn't know about. And he said, and as I turned to go back in, uh, Miss Ann was just finishing paying. And so he, uh, they walked out the front door together, and the man's gone. And so my dad ran around the building to see, and right, right there is Highway 77 coming through a busy highway, there's no way the man could have crossed that street at the pace that he walked. And so he ran around the building. The man's nowhere. Even if a car came to pick him up, it would have taken him time to even get in the car. And then he realized something angelic has just taken place. As a matter of fact, my mother said, do you think that that was an angel? And my dad said, just my okey luck that I'd get an angel that looked like that. <laughs> and fast forward a few years, my parents became students at Christ for the Nation's the greatest Bible school on planet earth. And <clears throat> one day he was, he was working for the Santa Fe Railroad at the time, and so he was heading north on 35 toward downtown Dallas from, from Christ for the Nations. And you know where it splits when 35 goes off to the left and 30 goes to the right and drops down into what they call the canyon. Just as he was dropping down to the canyon, he says that, you know, coming off the farm in Oklahoma, I just still could not get over all of that glass and steel jutting up out of the ground. And so he was mesmerized by the cityscape when the next thing he knows, he looks ahead of him and traffic is dead stop. He looked down at his speedometer and he's running 55, 60 miles an hour. He knows there's no way to brace himself for the, or to avoid this accident. So he did what all men of faith do. He put his hands over his eyes and hit the brakes hard. This is before disc brakes, so our anti-lock brakes, I should say. And so what happened was the moment he hit the brakes, the, the back end of the car began to come around, and his right fender was heading right into the, the back of a car. And he said, I closed my eyes, and all of a sudden I felt my car jerk, and the next thing I know, I'm on an off-ramp. Looking over and seeing dead stop traffic, and here he is on the off-ramp. He said, I don't have any other way to explain it except to say something happened. And I think the $5 and the, the message of love that I gave my angel gave him a new strength. And that day, the investment that I had made paid off. That angel picked his car up and brought him into safety. God's promise to you is that he will give you direction. It does not matter to him how small or how big. He simply loves you that much. You know, the Scripture teaches us that faith works by love. 
Faith works by love. And a lot of times we get the idea that it works by how much we love. But that is not how faith works. Faith works not by your love for God, but by His love for you. I want you to go one more place, and I'll finish with this. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And if we'll bring that up on the screen. Verse 2. This is Jesus speaking to a church, and He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Let's stop there. Would you say that that's a pretty good report from Jesus so far? Yeah. That's not a trick question. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Those are, I'd like those things to be said of me concerning God, of our church. Amen. But look at verse 4. This is really interesting. It says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Wow. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Wow. This is church. Hey, these guys are in some nasty sin. They're doing good stuff. And he says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. In other words, I'm going to take away your influence where you are. Why? They were tirelessly working for him. He says, you have not become weary. They were noble in their deeds, but the Lord was not impressed with that because their motivation was wrong. They're not laboring from a place of being loved. They're simply just doing their job now, apparently. And that which motivated them, they're receiving God's love for them to be the fuel for their passion, now had just come to doing the right thing because it's the right thing. First love. It's interesting. He says you've left your first love. It doesn't mean that they needed to start loving God again. That's not first love. When I was growing up, I always heard that, you know, you need to come back to your first love. And that is the moment that you got saved and everything was brand new and fresh. But then when I read the scripture, I found out that's not what first love was. 1 John 4 teaches us what first love is. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then verse 19 says, we love Him because He first loved us. There's your first love, to to be a recipient of it before that you are a giver of it. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. Amen. God warns that church that He's going to remove their influence because our relationship with Him is not merely one of religious duty, not one of just hating the right stuff, but one of receiving His extravagant love and in turn giving that same love to others. If you don't receive His love for you, then you choose to live your life without His direction and His guidance. Let God love you and He will lead you through that love. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Father, Thank you so much for your amazing grace to us today. It is abundant. It is abundant. Thank you that where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. And your grace teaches us, teaches us to live godly lives. It teaches us there's a rest 
in your grace. There's a rest in your love. Oh, Father, forgive us, or we have simply limited our existence and what we do to just being right and doing the right thing because that's what we should do. But rather more rise up back to that place. We do this because we are loved by God. To just allow your love to penetrate us, to flow to us and through us. What a rest there is in your love. You said, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are burdened down. Learn of me. Find rest in me. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Eric, I need, I need God. I need His help right now. I've been laboring. I'm tired. And I need Him to help me. I need strength today. I need my hope renewed again. I'm just tired. It's between me and you and God. Can you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you right where you are. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for all these who have raised their hand today. And there's rest for the weary today. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. I thank you, God, that you are right now infusing your joy, unspeakable and full of glory, into them. And that joy is our strength. Lord, that where there has been sighing and crying, there will be laughter and joy. There will be gladness of heart so that they will have a continual feast despite their circumstances. And I thank you, Lord. Your word says, cast your care upon me, for I care for you. So we release these things, these burdens that have so wearied your people. We release those to you and say, God, do what only you can do. And I pray that they would be, they would find rest, rest and strength. Jesus. Thank you for your beautiful gospel that in it is total rest. That Christ died for our sins and he was buried and he rose again from the dead three days later. And whoever believes on him will receive everlasting life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We want to invite you to join us in service Sundays at 9.30 a.m., 11 a.m., or 1 p.m., and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Please visit onecausechurch.com for location and events. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at One Cause Church. If you'd like to partner with our ministry, you can now donate securely online. Just click on the link located on the front page of our website at onecausechurch.com.